Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers become product masters. That has been the theme of this podcast now for six years running, and we're updating the name of the podcast, and I want you to know about that. We're changing the name to reflect what I say each week, that you're becoming a product master. The new name is going to be Product Masters Now. And you don't need to do anything different to keep listening, but I want you to know the name change is coming in a few weeks, and you'll see it showing up not as the Everyday Innovator, but as Product Masters Now in your podcast player. The logo stays essentially the same, just the name changing, so that should be easy to find still. Please keep listening and getting value from this podcast. Today's episode is about communicating. Product managers must communicate their ideas to others in ways that are clear and also in a collaborative way, a way that solicits feedback. Using visuals to help communicate information can be very helpful. Visual tools can make information easy to understand and also place it in context. Sometimes we call this visual storytelling. And when it comes to visual information, Amy Balliette is the leader. Her visual communication agency has created thousands of successful information campaigns for Fortune 1000 clients and others. She speaks on and teaches visual information concepts wherever she can, and thankfully she's joining us today so that we can understand how simple visual tools can make us better communicators. That gives us more influence as product managers. And remember, we take detailed notes for you if you want to go back to anything or have a simple way of sharing some key insights with colleagues. You'll find all those notes at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 320, along with a one-page action guide to help you put the principles that Amy shares into action right now. I hope you enjoy the discussion with Amy. Amy, thank you so much for joining the Everyday Innovators. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So we are discussing uh, how to visualize information. Maybe this is, this is still around infographics. I just remember the, the surge and, you know, infographics were such a big deal there for a while, not that many years ago. But I, I'm curious about getting some insights. You know, I, I like understanding my guests, not just the information they're sharing, always like digging in history a little bit. How did you end up kind of, you know, I think you're on this path to become the queen of, of visualizing information. How did this path happen? Well, after this, I'm going to start calling myself the queen of visualizing information. <laughs> so thank you. You know, I, I feel like a lot of a lot of life can be a happy accident in many ways. I think if you keep following the things you're passionate about, you eventually land in the career that makes the most sense for you. And when I look back at every domino that kind of fell over my life, I always wanted to be a filmmaker and a director. That was actually my big focus. So I went to film school and. In film school, I realized what I loved about film was editing the visual story and really building a narrative based on the edit. So I fell in love with visual storytelling. But at the time, I mean, it was 2004 when I graduated film school. So I didn't really know how I was going to start using those skills just yet. Hmm. So I, I moved from Cleveland, Ohio to Seattle, Washington for a variety of reasons, one being that it had a very large population of female filmmakers. So I knew that there was some opportunity being there to be able to kind of get to know the scene and see if it was where I wanted to spend my career. But I actually realized I wanted to do marketing. 
So I kind of pivoted my career over, over a couple of job changes and switched entirely into online marketing and SEO. And by the time I went to start my own business, which was a completely different business model than my company, Killer Visual Strategies, is today, I knew that infographics would be highly valuable for marketing. So I started creating infographics for the online marketing value in 2010. At the time, you could slap the word infographic on any piece of visual content and it would succeed. Because that's just where we all were in 2010. We were just so hungry for digital media and all these types of visual content out there. But we didn't yet have standards of what was good, what was quality. And I will say, I made some really, really bad infographics in the beginning. Just absolutely awful infographics in the beginning. But it led to people asking us to design infographics for them. So... In September of 2010, Killer Infographics launched, and we spent our first couple of years just focused on infographic design. And then we started evolving to motion graphics and interactive content and eBooks and so much more because that's what the consumer need was. That's, that's what audiences were demanding. And we knew we could apply what we had learned from the world of infographics and apply it to all these other types of media and by applying the best practices of visual communication and visual storytelling that fit within a succinct infographic, by applying that to all of this, all of these other types of creative content, you could drive a lot of success. And so the marketer in me merged with the visual storyteller in me. And that's when we really just blew up as a company and changed our name to Killer Visual Strategies and continued to grow as, as a result. The part of that that just ha had my heart feeling so warm is the visual storytelling element, right? Mm -hmm. And storytelling for product managers is an important tool for us because we need to get, we need to gain support from those around us. We need to influence others. Storytelling, how we position ideas and try to get people cooperating with us is really important to us. And that connection going from film and wanting to, you know, tell stories in that media now to applying it to business, I just, just, love that kind of evolution. And I think it gives a very solid foundation as the way we had talked earlier about Don Miller, who was an author who applies storytelling as an author now to businesses to help them with marketing. You're applying that visual storytelling to visual information now for businesses. Exactly. Exactly. And it's it makes a huge difference for all businesses because audiences crave it. Audiences want to get to know the brands that they're that they're buying from. They want to understand services at a deeper level. And that means they want authenticity and transparency, but they often don't want to take the time to read any type of content that delivers that authenticity mm -hmm. and transparency. So we focus on visualizing that message so that they'll honestly consume it far, far more often and, and with far more veracity than they would text-based storytelling. Excellent. So we're going to get into some some specific steps. You call them rules for visually communicating information. So everyday innovators, hang on. But I, I have one more background kind of question I was curious about. I've seen, as I was researching, you saw some comparisons with you and Edward Tufte. And when it comes to visualizing information, he has been the reigning king. I, I, I don't, frankly, I'm not even sure if he's still alive. I haven't kept up with his, his career. He, he was a <clears throat> professor and I went to, I attended one of his workshops some time ago, and he has these three very well-renowned books 
on how do you visualize information and present it in a way that is easier to understand. I'm curious about that comparison, just your reflections on that and you know the contributions that you're making to visualizing information. What, what do you think about that? Honestly, to be compared to Tufty is just a dream. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a huge compliment. I've been following Tufty from the beginning. I've also been to his workshops. Mm-hmm. And I remember really early on when I started out, before I started doing all the public speaking that I do, I sat in on one of his workshops and I thought to myself, holy cow, this is a lot of information in eight hours, but a lot of people kind of felt very overwhelmed. So I I said to myself, how can I share this same content, but in a way that's easier to digest? Mm -hmm. Because attention spans have changed. And I think that there is a a subtle difference between Tufty and I, and the, the subtle difference is, you know, he focused a lot of his efforts and a lot of his information sharing on how to visualize information from a scientific perspective, how to visualize information from a historical perspective, and really visualizing content for an analytical audience. For what we do at at Killer, it's about visualizing content to engage your audience. It's about marketing. It's about advertising. It's kind of about making content edgy and exciting while still delivering a very clear and succinct message. And so he laid this amazing foundation And we took from that so many great lessons. And then we've added, when I think about, for instance, my eight rules of visual communication, those are rules that don't exist within Tufty's world because Tufty's already laid a beautiful, a beautiful foundation. My rules talk about today's audiences and what they expect. So it kind of adds on to that by really considering our hyper shortened attention spans and and what we need to do today to catch that attention really quickly because everybody's distracted left and right by all the information that comes at them. Yep. All of us that are pushing knowledge forward are standing on the heads and the shoulders of those before us, right? And yes, um, that's a nice comparison, I I, I would think, right? To to be in that Uh, circle. And um, and you're adding important knowledge for us as well. Exactly. And I feel like I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for Edward Tufte. So, I mean... All in all, I, he is just one of my all-time heroes. So to even be compared to him is a blessing, in my opinion. Let's get into some of your rules here. So you talk in detail about these. You have a book, Killer Visual Strategies, and <clears throat> it contains a lot more information than just these eight rules for visual communication. But I want to give uh, listeners some practical tips to walk away with as well. So we'll, we'll cover what we, what we have time for. You put them together in a flow, but we can go anywhere that you want. So you want to pick where you want to start, and we'll, we'll talk about that rule. Yeah, definitely. I always love to start with my favorite rule, which is always think about context. It's a con when there's too much text. (laughs) So the the word has a hyphen in it, con text. Yes, exactly. I love that rule because I think that is the, the foundation of visual storytelling today. Visual communication is the act of graphically representing information to efficiently and effectively create meaning. That entire definition says graphically representing information. Yet often when we look at infographics today, 99% of them are going to be a paragraph of text next to an image, next to a paragraph, next to an image, and so on. That's not really an infographic, and that's not really visual communication. If you have to read the text to understand the visuals, 
you're actually working against yourself. The concept of visual storytelling and visual communication means that what you're trying to do is help the viewer, help your end audience come to a conclusion in five seconds or less. Mm. And in reality, we have our brain science really is, is amazing to consider as you think about content today, because a lot of how we respond to content is innate. It's, it's not a nurtured experience. It's very much a natural set of instinctual responses. And one aspect of that is the fact that we will take in visual information in one-tenth of a second. Mm. We'll form a first impression in one-tenth of a second. We will not, however, take in and store text-based information in under five seconds. So if we have only five seconds to get somebody's attention, it makes sense to deliver visual content that helps them jump to a conclusion before they have to read anything. Yet if you're delivering an infographic where you have to read to understand what that infographic is all about, you're not visually communicating information. You're putting the cart before the horse in many ways. So that always think about context rule is one of the most important. There's this really cool, this really cool Buzz Sumo study that was done recently where they studied over a million articles online. And what they found was that the articles that had an image every 75 to 100 words had a 2x engagement factor over the articles that had just one image or less. So ultimately, audiences see a wall of text and they're averse to it. So we have to find ways to connect and communicate with as little text as possible. So that's my favorite rule. I'm happy to jump into some others if you're willing to listen. Absolutely. I want to ask you one <laughs> follow-up question, though, that Definitely. triggered my mind because of that BuzzFumo study. So the, the infographics that we still are, exist, I'm sure, but had seen in the past where there's the uh, graphic that might capture our attention and then all the text to really explain what's going on. And the graphic might just be clip art and, frankly, kind of unrelated to the text. It, it's it's mm-hmm. there to go, oh, what is that thing? <clears throat> in the BuzzSumo study, I, I think without knowing the study, right, The you could walk away and go, oh, I, I just need to throw in a graphic every 100 words and I'm going to get more engagement. But we, and, and I, I see slide presentations like this at times, right? That This is kind of why it's on my mind <laughs> is that sometimes I see slide presentations that they just have the, the nice picture, but it doesn't enhance the information. It's not it, – it looks nice. I might look at it, but it's not related to the information. This is not what we're talking about, right? Exactly, exactly. I mean, if if the picture isn't related to the information, then it's not graphically representing information. And the fact is, is quality visual content is what truly succeeds online. 94% of first impressions are based entirely on design. If you're leading with stock imagery, if you're leading with clip art, you're not really leading with quality design. And that's actually one of my rules is avoid the stigma of stock because the fact of the matter is, is custom illustrations convert seven times better than stock imagery does today. And there are a lot of reasons for this. I I like to think about the fact that in today's world, we are all content creators, whether you are big on using your Instagram account or maybe you use TikTok a lot or Snapchat a lot. We all have these tools at our disposal to quickly edit video, to add filters to to candid, authentic photography. 
all of these tools help us create content at a level that feels authentic, original, and transparent. And so if a brand is leading with clip art or stock imagery, that means they're, to us, they're not even doing the heavy lifting. We can create better content on our own. So we expect brands to level up and create content better than what what we can do. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if, if you're just throwing an image in there for the sake of throwing an image in, it's not going to do anything for you. It's about leading with 100% custom illustration or custom photography and ensuring that if you're leading with custom illustration, that all of that illustration matches the exact same style as well. People are often out there buying all these different vector packets, these stock illustration packets, and just kind of saying, okay, now I have some custom illustration. But in reality, they're mixing illustration styles, which tends to look very odd on the eye. But we can't always pinpoint why it's weird for us to look at. It's a subconscious issue where subconsciously we look at it and and tend to have an aversion to it. But people rarely can put words to why it's an issue. And so I I talk about that a lot in my book about how to ensure you have uniformity in your design Mm -hmm. and what quality really means because content is king. Visual content is the new king, but quality visual content is what reigns supreme. Mm -hmm. And that's really what I want people to get at from, from the book is understand what quality is and then the eight rules help you implement quality content i'm interrupting the interview to share something really important we'll get back to the discussion in just a minute but i want you to know about an extraordinary system called the rapid product mastery or rpm experience in just nine weeks you can have a higher performing product team meeting only 75 minutes a week with no travel required One product leader, after trying all the typical training workshops, turned to the RPM experience to get real change for his team. He said that this is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed it to do. If you have a group of 5 to 14 product professionals, learn how you too can have a high-performing team in just 9 weeks, 75 minutes a week, without travel. This is the system created by Chad, based on his experience working as a product leader, coaching several organizations, and deeply studying innovation during his PhD work. Get the guide for yourself at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. And I want to reiterate for every innovators, you know, the reason why this is important to us is we have information to share. We have to influence others. We need to package it in a way that will optimize its reception, right? That, that we're conveying what we actually mean, and we're trying to improve the opportunity for people to receive it in the way that we actually mean for it to be received as well. And so we got two good rules so far, the, the con text. So the con is when there's too much text. So make sure that the graphic conveys the information that you want and that you're not relying on the text itself. And then we also went to the, you said, uh, the stigma of stock that we want want illustrations and illustrations that fit together too. And I'll just share for listeners the the two things that I have found helpful because I don't necessarily have the eye, like you said, I I go, that doesn't look as good as it could, but until I see what it could look like, then I go, oh, now I get the difference. And the things mm-hmm. that helped me in a company setting, if I had someone, you know, a designer in one of the departments that was good at that, 
I would use them. That was great, right? Because I knew that they would put things together that were so much better. And now, you know, running my my own business here, I have a wonderful brand person that I contract to, and she makes things look so much better than I possibly could, right? And they look consistent. And so even though I don't have that skill, I know what looks good and it's easy to find people to help. Exactly, exactly. And that's, that is really what it comes down to, because I think that Right now, marketers, brand communicators, et cetera, they're often being told, hey, use this DIY tool or buy this stock imagery. Right. You can do it all yourself. And in reality, if you don't have an eye for design, if you don't have the skill set that's required um, to create great designs, those DIY tools are only going to get you so far. They're, they're going to put you in a place where it, it's kind of like, let's say you want to get from point A to point B. You can do it in a jalopy. You can do it in a car that's going to break down every, you know, hundred miles or so, getting you getting you from point A to point B. But you're going to have to do a lot of work with that car, and all of that time and energy that you spend is going to be a little bit of a headache, and mm -hmm. still won't be a huge success for you. Or you can work with a designer who's going to get you a perfect vehicle, something that's exactly meant for you to get you from point A to point B. And it won't break down every step of the way. And, and that's kind of a way to look at it. It's just simply, yeah, you can do it yourself. But if you're not a mechanic already, then maybe you shouldn't be the one fixing up your car on a regular basis. And if you're not a designer, maybe you shouldn't be the one designing this content. Yeah. And I think I, in the past, I thought, well, I, I, I can make it good enough, right? Because I'm, yeah. I'm reasonable with those tools. But then when I see what real designers can do, it's like, oh, my word, you made it so much better. Let's keep doing that. And I kind of think of it as writing, right? I, I write pretty well, but I know an editor is going to find some mistakes I made and make my writing more concise and tighter and more effective. Like, why would I do that? Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's completely true. <laughs> okay, so we got a couple of rules. Where else do you want to go uh, to your eight rules? You know, there are two rules that work really well together. One of them is there's no gold at the end of that rainbow. And the other one is visual strategists ask WTF. So let me explain these rules. There's no gold at the end of the rainbow. This rule is about color theory. I think that we as a, just as a culture have put a lot of stock in this idea of color theory. For instance, you go into a store um, and you're in the, in the aisle about to, about to check out and you see all these bright colors in front of you with all these different products and that it's meant to get you to buy those products last mm -hmm. minute. And there's been all of this science behind it talking about how it's because it's because these are bright colors that make you want to buy these things. And that's not actually true. It's because they're cheap and they're candy that make you want to buy those things. Like it's not necessarily the colors. The fact is that color theory has been debunked time and time again. We're too much of a global society and different colors have different meanings in different cultures. And so I, I often find that as people dive into visual content, they try to force meaning with colors. And the, the idea of there's no gold at the end of that rainbow, that rule really focuses on the fact that colors do matter in visual communication, but not in the way people think. Different colors are not going to invoke different emotions. But if you use colors wisely in your design, you can, you can actually convey meaning you can have the subconscious start to recognize patterns in those colors. And therefore, it makes it easier for people to skim the content or for people to find important call-outs based on the color choices that you're using. 
but the colors have to actually be used with intent and you can't use a rainbow of colors. When you're thinking about good design, it's about being minimal with your color usage as well. If you lead with a rainbow of colors, it feels overwhelming to the eye. And often we start to look for meaning in those colors when they don't exist. So while colors don't carry meaning, it brings it brings us to the next rule, which is good visual strategists ask WTF. And WTF means why that font? The, the whole concept here is fonts do carry forward an emotional response. They do invoke emotion. Different fonts really do have different styles that that are associated to different topics. And the most notable or the most easy to, to think of for all of us is think of that last wedding invitation you looked at. It was most likely using a script font. It was most likely using a font that looked like calligraphy. And that is because that font invokes celebration, but it also invokes this idea of classic beauty and 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 formal wear. And so th- there's a reason that font is associated so much to to the wedding industry as a whole. And there are so many different ways to look at fonts and to use fonts to really drive your audience to certain actions. So I dig deeply into font usage in my book and I actually include a bunch of quick reference materials so that you can quickly identify the right font for Hmm. the right topic as well. Uh, Okay. I I need coaching on this for sure. So we're we're just going to do that right now since I have the opportunity to to ask you. (laughs) So for listeners, Amy and I I are on video with each other so we can see each other too. And you probably see my logo in the video here. I I have it on my mic. I do. How Mm -hmm. clear that is. Colors kind of got chosen at one point for a reason, then we tweaked them a little bit, and my brand person and I went through all this, and let's just make this practical, because th- this has been a headache many times whenever I'm trying to present something visually, what colors go well together, and what fonts should be used. And, you know, I haven't, I've never seen an Arial font I don't like. I just like it clean, simple, I'm happy, right? But yep. I also have heard people say, well, that's just lazy, they just used an Arial font, right? And so it has to have a little more personality than that. So the color Colors, my colors for the logo are kind of a dark blue, which I meant that I, I had some meaning behind these things, right? But I wanted that to kind of mm-hmm. feel like trustworthy was the thought. An orange, which is just kind of bright and lively for me. And then a what used to be green, which is now teal because the, it fit better. But the, the green originally was, you know, this is meant to be more of a sustainable perspective, you know, and we care about some some bigger issues here. And the teal fits the other color combination. So we, we revamped this last year now that I have a brand manager helping me with things. And then we spent a lot of time talking about fonts. Like I said, mm-hmm. Ariel, I'm happy, but a little bit too expected, maybe too plain and boring. And with the font discussion is, was part of what fonts go well together, right? Because if you're on, if you're presenting information in a document or a website, at least you're going to have headings and you're going to have text. What do you do with those two things? And there's some other things that might come up too. So any more insights into that? And as you're looking at my logo here in colors, any feedback on that? Well, I would say on a feedback perspective, I totally understand where you're coming from when it comes to why you chose the colors. Oftentimes people see blue and and say blue invokes trust. And that is actually a, a kind of 
It's a story we tell ourselves, especially in, it kind of comes out of Silicon Valley. There was a period of time where every tech company out of the Valley was using a different bold blue to really show that they were tech and they were trustworthy. And that kind of works if you're ingrained in the Valley. So you've been taught that expectation, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, any mom pop up the street will walk by and see that color and say, oh, I trust this company more because of because of blue. Instead, they might say, I trust the company more because of orange, because maybe they have an experience with a company in their past that led with orange in their color palette. And they feel like, okay, now orange resonates with me as trustworthiness. So choosing the colors based on emotion, I would say, it makes sense if your target audience is really focused on that exact same belief behind the color, but it's not necessarily going to connect with every audience out mm-hmm. there. They're not going to come to those same conclusions. When it comes to fonts, I'm not going to lie. I love a good Helvetica. I love a good Arial right. as well. I'm, Can't go yeah, wrong. <laughs> I'm, exactly. I'm a big fan of simple. And the thing is, is Arial, Helvetica, fonts like that are classic fonts for a reason. They're, they're, they're classic because you can't go wrong. And also because they have so many different font weights that you can add some diversity to the look and feel. But how you lay out those fonts does matter. In your logo, you're using great typography where the, the actual text is kind of working with the light bulb itself. As a result, the font choice for the text is not necessarily as important as the execution of that mm. font. Because you have it executed in a way that drags the eye in, a way that um, is exciting and different instead of having everything just line up perfectly on a straight line. So you're utilizing that font in a way that that actually shows some momentum and movement. Now, that being said, as you're trying to identify fonts, it does take a good eye to say what fonts work well together. I love to use different tools online to really figure out what fonts are going to work best together. I go to a site called Lost Type all the time. Lost Type has some of the best fonts out there. They're all very, very modern. And often what I like to do is take a um, heavier weight font and pair it with a lightweight font. I'll use the heavier weight font for all of my headlines because we expect headlines to be bolder. We expect headlines to be something that really calls our attention to that headline. And then I will use a clean, thinner font for any supporting text, any labels, any um, subheaders, anything like that. And sometimes I'll, I'll do a different treatment. Like maybe I will use all lowercase or all uppercase. For instance, you've made the choice of using all lowercase. And that does send a message as well. When you're using all lowercase, it's actually more open and welcoming. When you're using all uppercase, it usually is speaking with more authority. And so you kind of sometimes have to choose between those two things as well. And in my opinion, when it's a podcast, all lowercase is the way to go. You don't want to be leading with something that is all uppercase font because in a sense that says, I know what's happening. I know the truth here. I know what I'm sharing, but not I am open to my guest's input. So by leading even with all lowercase, you're actually making some well-informed intentional decisions here that do set a tone for your audience. So it's all of these little details make a difference. And that's the thing about visual communication. We often think as long as I put something together that looks good, I'm good. 
but that's not actually true. We read meaning into so many subtle visual cues throughout. And that's actually another one of my rules. Small visual cues have a large impact. And that can be your fonts, that can be your colors, or it can be something as simple as whether or not you're using a period versus an emoji in the content that you're putting out there. There was a study that was just put out that said, Generation Z is intimidated by periods. They hate periods. And there are many reasons behind why they hate periods. But if you just take a few as examples, they're raised as digital natives. They're raised in a world where they're communicating visually already. They don't necessarily need to use periods when they have hundreds of emojis Mm -hmm. at their disposal that can better put context around what they're saying to one another. And so when somebody uses a period, they actually think that that person is sending a message of being annoyed or angry at them because they've chosen to use a period instead of the myriad other options at their disposal. So even that small visual cue has an extremely large impact on a subset of our consumer groups out there. There is a lot of richness in there. And I think some uh, innovators might be thinking, this is just too much detail for me to, to, to deal with, right? If we're going to market and, and investing in, in marketing visuals for our products, then it's important to think about this detail. A lot of us aren't in that specific role, but we are, back to what I said before, we are in the role of influencing those around us. And we always have to be presenting information to do that. And if we just share the data people fall asleep and they're not paying attention and we're not being effective. And if we can wrap that in a story and back it up with visuals that that convey the information more wisely and more effectively, we get them on board with us. So I I think that's the big picture for us as product managers. Um, We got to talk about four of your roles a little bit, scratch the surface there. You introduced another one there at the end. So we've not done justice to all eight. A lot more detail back in your book, Killer Visual Strategies. I'll make sure there's a link to uh, that. As listeners know, I love innovation quotes. I asked you to bring us one. Can you share that and tell us what that means to you? Yeah. So it's one of my absolute favorite quotes. It's it's an expert is a person who has made every possible mistake they can in their niche. And it's I, I, I didn't say that word for word, but that's basically the quote. It's a Niels Bohr quote. And the reason it stands out to me is because everybody suffers from imposter syndrome in one way or another. Millennials are, are like the generation of imposter syndrome. And I am a zennial. I, I happily take on that zennial title, which is that 1978 to 1982, four-year period between Gen, Gen X and millennial. But ultimately, as, as somebody who is a zennial or a millennial, I too have lived in a world of some, some of my own imposter syndrome because we now have a, a world where we're comparing ourselves to tens of thousands of people on a daily basis. It's not like it used to be before the internet where the average group of people we would compare ourselves to would be about 100 people in our small communities that we lived in. So you could always be the best at something. Well, now we live in a world where nobody's the best at something. There's always somebody better than you. And all you have to do is one search on Google to find that person. And so, you know, as I kind of have grown in my career as a thought leader in visual communication, I've had plenty of points where I've thought to myself, am I good enough? I've often compared myself to Tufty and said, am I as analytical as he is? Because 
holy cow, you hear him talk and, and he talks like this professor, this scientist with all of this wealth of experience. And you guys are hearing me talk right now. I definitely don't talk like a professor. And, and as a result, I have always kind of questioned myself until I heard that quote. And one thing I really realized was I have made every mistake I could possibly make in the world of visual communication. And my book is about all the lessons that I've learned from those mistakes, because it has taken me 10 years to get to a point where I am a go-to thought leader in the space of visual communication, where people trust my word and, and listen to what I say and apply it to their own businesses and their own work. But that has come from thousands upon thousands of mistakes first. And every time we make a mistake at my company, we celebrate it. It's an opportunity to learn and to grow and to get that much closer to being an expert. So that quote for me means everything because it's, it lets us celebrate mistakes and, and just helps let us know we're on the right path to success. That is a quote that is important to your team and the group there, important to you personally to kind of, kind of let yourself breathe and feel you know, more secure. Yeah, I've made all these mistakes. I have to know something, right? Yeah. And critical for us as product managers and innovators, because if we're doing something new, right, the whole nature of, of our work is doing something new all the time, we are going to be swimming in mistakes. And our job is to learn from that and, and then move forward. So. Love that quote and love your story behind sharing that too. How can listeners find out more about the work that you do, more about the organization, more about the book? So if you want to learn at all about our agency that, that has been around for the past decade doing work for Fortune 500 companies, that is KillerVisualStrategies.com. If you want to check out the book, just search Killer Visual Strategies on Amazon. And if you want to learn more about me, I am most most active on LinkedIn mm -hmm. from all the social networks out there. So definitely find me on LinkedIn. Email me on LinkedIn. I try to get in there every Friday and answer all the emails for the week. So definitely email me on LinkedIn. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And in the new year, I'm going to start getting to a point where I'm putting out a couple of articles a week on LinkedIn as well. Hmm. Very nice. Okay. So connect with Amy on LinkedIn. I'll make sure there's links in the show notes to make that easy. Amy, thank you so much for your time and being now officially crowned the queen of visual information. Thank you so much, Chad. I appreciate it. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator, the podcast that is soon going to be known as Product Masters Now. This is still and always has been where product leaders and managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Find the written notes, the details of everything that Amy shared with us at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 320. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.